think one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century has to be Karl Barth. Now we're going to talk about Bart here uh, for a bit, but uh, before I get into this, I just want to say that his name is spelled B-A-R-T-H, right? Barth is how we might say that, but it's pronounced Bart, and I'm going to do my best to say it right, but the last time I quoted Bart in a sermon, I made the mistake of saying Barth, and on Monday, I got roasted by somebody that was in this room for mispronouncing it. In fact, it might be somebody that has an office somewhere in this building, I'm not going to name names, but I'm just asking that if I do read it instead of pronouncing it rightly, just have a little bit of grace with me. Can we do that? So Bart was perhaps the most important Swiss theologian of the 20th century, right? His influence went far beyond Switzerland. He's considered alongside Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin and Friedrich Schleiermacher to be one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the Christian tradition. He gave new impulses to Protestant theology during a critical phase. He helped reshape it towards a systematic theology as we were coping through some of the grim realities of the 20th century. And he was the principal author of the Barman Declaration, which we've talked about in sermons before, but this was the, the intellectual leader, and he wrote this document for the German Confessing Church, which was a group of Protestant churches that resisted the influence of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. And perhaps Bart's greatest work is his theology series, Church Dogmatics, which he died before completing. And Church Dogmatics is massive. It is expansive. You can think of the, the biggest book you have on your shelf, whether it's a textbook from when you were in school or the, an encyclopedia series, whatever book you have at home that you're like, that's the biggest book I've ever read. This is longer. Church Dogmatics, when you get a printed copy, comes as 13 or 14 volumes Right? It is 9,000 pages. It's over 6 million words that he has written. And for a bit of context, the Bible in front of you, if you were to read all the pages, translations, different editions will be slightly different, but there's around 780,000 words. He wrote 6 million. And so Bart made it his task to, in his own words, take everything that has been said before, right? meaning to think through all of what human history has talked about and thought about God, and to think it through once more and to freshly articulate it as a new theology of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And in his lifetime, he came to the United States. He came to North America once and he toured. He went to a number of seminaries and universities and he gave lectures. And he was at Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. And he gave this formal address. And afterwards, he was engaging in an informal conversation with a number of students. And one young man came up and asked him if he could state the core of what he believed. And I get that. I mean, Bart, you've, you've written six million words. You've written 14 volumes. It's almost too big to understand what's the core. What's the center? What helps me appreciate this so that as I read and I learn and I grow, the rest of this makes sense. And so Bart takes a moment and he lights his pipe. And as the smoke drifts away, he replies, yes, I think I can summarize my theology in these words. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Right, even someone who wrote six million words expounding on faith and life and belief and theology comes back to this simple summary that the love of God is the most foundational core of our belief. And so today we want to explore that a little bit more in depth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us God, we ask that you would give us openness today as we explore the meaning of your love, 
the example that you have given us in love and how we can be people who show love to the world around us. Amen. If you've been with us over the past number of weeks, you would know that we're currently in a series on the book of 1 John called Knowing the God of Love. And so over the past number of weeks, we've been working our way through this letter written by the Apostle John to a number of house churches to provide them with guidance and uh, in addressing the Gnosticism surrounding the church, right? There's believers whose focus has gone from the themes of the gospel uh, to thinking that their faith is based on some secret knowledge or some other teaching that kind of enhances it or raises the bar on it. And so this letter is written as a reminder of what the core things are. Right? It's an address of the false teaching, and it's an encouragement and an assurance to the believers that are holding fast in their faith. It says in 1 John 5.13, towards the end of the book, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, the book of 1 John can be a little bit difficult to figure out because it's not structured how we, in our North American context, would probably structure it, right? It's, it's a letter, but it's not structured like some of the biblical letters. It's almost written a little bit more like a sermon or a homily. Perhaps it was sent with a messenger who read it and would kind of expound on it a little bit as he was sharing it with these different house churches. It's also got a bit of a spiraling theme where John continually repeats different themes of life and love over and over again, and it also has something called chiastic structure, Right? In our modern Western world, we learn to write essays. That's one of our foundational skills in, in an English class. And I think that idea is what carries with a lot of us as we write proposals and different things. Right? You give your introduction. Here's what I'm going to be talking about. Here's my thesis statement. This is my, my point. Here's the three subpoints. Then we write all our body paragraphs. And we go, okay, well, here's the evidence, and here's the evidence, and here's the evidence, and here's my argument stated. And then we conclude by saying, hey, that was my idea. There's my points. It's this very linear progression of points. But in the ancient world, writings often use this chiastic structure. It's a form of writing where there are parallels before and after the key point. The key point is actually in the middle of the writing. And so this is from a writer by the name of John Christopher Thomas. There's a few different versions of this that's going to pop up on screen that all use slightly different language, but it kind of lays out a little bit of how 1 John kind of breaks down some of these key themes, right? We start and end the book with these ideas of eternal life, and later on there's the section of a new commandment, a commandment of love. There's the section on the Antichrist. There's sections on believers having confidence for a few different reasons. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 11 through 18, we have this section on loving one another, right? Love is at the center. Love is the core. It's foundational, not only to our understanding, but to our understanding of 1 John. And so we're going to pick up where Pastor Dave left off last week in 1 John 3, 11 through 24. Uh, the book of 1 John is towards the end of your Bible. It's what's known as the New Testament. And so the New Testament surrounds the life, death, resurrection, and the events following the life of Jesus. So you can feel free to follow along with me as I read from the ESV. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible, on the Bible app, or on the screen behind me. This is 1 John 3, 11 through 24. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore this theme of love, right? What does it mean for love to be the central theme of the Christian life? And to explore what love is according to the book of 1 John. If you'd like to take notes, our first point today is called Love Versus Hate, it says in, uh, in verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so right, this message that they have heard from the beginning to love one another is a direct repetition of the words of Jesus. Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you but you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It says it again in John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And so for the Christians that John is writing to, this idea of loving one another would have been foundational to what they had heard, right? It would have been this foundational idea from Christ that's existed in this community of believers since its foundation. For these people, this has been the marker of their entire Christian experience. But by pairing it with the story of Cain and Abel, John is putting this into the larger context of these older narratives of Scripture, almost as if to say, yes, this is from Jesus, this is what he taught us, but it actually applies throughout, Christ throughout history. It applies to all these older narratives. So let's briefly look at the story of Cain and Abel. This is Genesis chapter 4. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell off. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And Cain, as the first murderer in Scripture, kind of takes on this reputation or this, this archetype of the sinner. Right? He sets this trajectory for his descendants of this escalating evil, this contamination. Right? Adam and Eve kind of embody throughout Scripture this idea of, oh, they have fallen from grace. But Cain almost embodies this idea of being fully removed from it, this idea of depravity and evil. That is the character that a lot of people associate with Cain when they talk about him. And Cain and Abel are also brothers, and it kind of parallels, as John is writing, the brothers and sisters of the faith. It includes those who are abandoning the gospel and making other things ultimate, 
above Christ and turning against their church community, right? Cain and Abel are brothers, but they don't really have the same character, right? Cain represents this evil one where Abel's life is pleasing to God. And so John is saying to these people, well, you've been given a commandment to love. Walk in this character of love. Do not be drawn into hate. Do not be drawn into evil. Do not be drawn into this other character that's separate, right? You can walk this path of love, or you can walk this path of hate and of evil, John continues in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. But it continues a little bit of the same idea. The nature of love and the nature of evil stand in opposition. They cannot coexist, right? The world in this verse, referring to all those outside the church, they will hate you because they don't have the spirit of love. They cannot coexist with you. And so when we live our lives, we should not be surprised by worldly opposition, because the nature of love and the nature of evil are opposed. Continues verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so we know that we've stepped out of death and we've stepped into life because of our love. Now this phrase, because we love, it uses a present tense form of the verb love, right? It gives us this picture of ongoing love for other believers, right? Love is not a momentary thing. It's not a checkbox that we complete. I didn't stop loving my wife when we got married. Our love didn't pass a threshold where I said, yep, good enough. We can stop here. Tank's full, quota's met. No, our love is this ongoing, evolving, changing, and growing thing. It has to be. If I simply said, no, I did all that. Like, I loved you. Like, we're done. Like, that's, that's it. I'm going to be in for a stern talking to. Right? This needs to be an ongoing, active love, and that's what John calls us to. And love here is not just an action. It also applies to our attitudes. Right? John echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 21. It says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus draws this line from hatred to murder. John continues it, right? If our lives are full of hatred in our attitude, then we don't have the spirit of love and life in us. I think it's really easy to say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't hate that person. I don't hate somebody. I don't, I don't have this, this white, hot, angry rage that we maybe associate with hate. I've never wanted to, to throttle somebody, right? Like this isn't, I don't have this hate and anger, but what about our subtle ways? Or do we live lives where we politely dismiss others because we don't really see their input as being valuable and we just dismiss them. We don't really want their, their input. We don't think they're meaningful. We don't, we don't want their bearing affecting us. Or we treat people in apathetic ways where we avoid them or we skirt around them. We're in the foyer of the church and we cut through a hallway to get away from talking to them. Right? We don't often speak in this way that our hate is so evident, but it's often these subtle ways that we can demonstrate some of these characteristics. In George Orwell's 1984, there's this somewhat infamous scene. It's called The Two Minutes Hate. And in the novel or the movie, if you've seen it, the citizens of Oceania, they're required to watch propaganda about their enemies for two minutes a day, and they just scream pure hatred and vitriol at them. To quote from the book, it says, the horrible thing about the two minutes hate was not that one was obliged to act apart, but on the contrary, that it was impossible to avoid joining in. 
Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. A hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, and to smash faces in with a sledgehammer seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one even against one's will into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. And this scene is somewhat dramatic. Right? We don't yell and scream at our TV. We don't become violent. When we look at the role social media plays in our life or the 24-hour news cycle or the constant consumption of different content that we have, it kind of feels like we're participating in a little bit of a version of this two minutes hate, right? We're constantly being told who to value and who to not value, who to respect and who to not respect. We are told who our enemies are towards our country or our enemies of the province and who's against us and who's for us. I recently rejoined Twitter. I got off a couple years ago, but rejoined. I wanted to follow the Oilers playoff run, uh, rest in peace, and uh, to follow the provincial election. And it's kind of shocking to me after being on it, even just a couple weeks, the way people talk online about others. Right? We're not standing, we're not shouting at a TV, we're not shouting at propaganda, but the language and the attacks that we use online should be shocking to us. Right, the way people are dismissive and aggressive in their language, the bumper stickers people put on their car, the subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways that we display hate in our culture should be shocking to us if we are people of love. But I think in an increasingly polarized world, we don't really get shocked by these attitudes anymore. Right, there's no grace, there's no compassion, there's no desire for understanding, there's just division and contempt and anger spewed uninterrupted at anyone who's gonna listen. And so maybe our actions aren't hateful, we're not doing things intentionally to someone that demonstrate hate, and maybe our attitudes toward our neighbors or people we know and people we like and people we trust aren't actions of hate, but what is our social media? What is the content we consume? What is the things that we're surrounding ourselves teach us and train us to do? Are we basing our lives on love? Are we surrounding ourselves with this character of love or are we walking in hate? And so this passage starts with love and hate contrasted, but what, what does love actually look like? Because love is not just an attitude, it's also a practical action. And so John goes on to define love in verse 16 through 18. Verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so if Cain has provided the negative example here for love, here John marks Jesus as the positive example, this, con this contrasting here. Hate kills, whereas love, sacrificial love, brings life. It was Charles Spurgeon in a sermon on this same passage, as if speaking directly to Jesus, he said this, Ah, Lord Jesus, I never knew thy love till I understood the meaning of thy death. The most astounding thing in all the world is the fact that Jesus was willing out of love for us to die in our place as a substitute. And so that is the gospel message, right? That Jesus has given his life as an act of love that we might be rescued from the death that we deserve and we might be reconciled into a relationship with him. John continues in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
And so love is more than just a word. It's more than just a feeling. It is a deed, right? Love requires action. And so John gives us this, this picture that kind of mirrors Deuteronomy chapter 15. Uh, this is verses 7 through 9. It says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever you need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. And so for a little bit of context on the history of this, earlier in this passage, there are instructions given to the Israelites that every seven years, they are to forgive all the debts to cancel the debts that are owed to them from other Israelites. And so this passage not only talks about not, uh, talks about giving generously and canceling those debts, but also talks about not being stingy when you know that period of forgiveness is starting to come. Right, it continues, verse 10, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. And so in John's letter, laying down one's life, right, making personal sacrifices to demonstrate love, means meeting the needs and basic necessities in the life of others. Christ is the model for us to emulate in laying down from ourselves sacrificially to meet the needs of others. And I think one key detail that we can skim over in a quick reading of this passage is a deliberate transition that happens in verses 16 and 17. It says in verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, plural, and then it continues in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother, singular, in need. Why does John do this? I think he does it because it makes it personal. Right? It's easy to say, yeah, I'd, I'd sacrifice for the church. Oh, I'd sacrifice for that group of people, the people I'm with every Sunday. But it gets a little bit harder when it's not thinking about it as a group and it's thinking about each person individually. C.S. Lewis said, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And so love is not defined by our words, but by our individual and specific actions, right? actions of generosity, practically and significantly giving from ourselves and our resources and our worldly possessions to meet the needs of others. There are some accounts that William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once sent a one-word telegraph to all of their officers around the world. And that one-word telegraph simply said this, others. And whether that part of the story is true or not, one thing is for sure. Salvation Army workers were known for their unselfish commitment to others. On May 29, 1914, the ship, the Empress of Ireland, sank with 130 Salvation Army officers on board and 109 of those officers were drowned. Not one body that was picked up of the Salvation Army officers had a life preserver on. The few survivors of the shipwreck told how the Salvationists, uh, finding there was not enough life preservers for everybody, would take theirs off and strap them on, even to the strong men, saying, I can die better than you can. And from the deck of that sinking ship, they heralded their battle cry around the world, others. 
Imagine what our love would look like if each of us practically every day cried others as we gave of our possessions, as we gave of our finances, as we gave of our time, as we gave of our spare clothes and jackets and food, others. May we all pray this prayer by William Coffin. We have taken advantage of thy great and unqualified love. We have presumed upon thy patience to do less than we might have done, to be timid when we should have shown courage, to be careful when we should have been reckless, not counting the cost. We pray now, O Father, to be used roughly. Stamp on our selfishness. We'd stamp on our selfishness, selfishness so that we may love others fully, and in doing so, live out the example that is set for us in Jesus. Jenna moves from talking about love being defined to speaking of the assurance that we have from a life of love. This is verse 19. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Ever been praying and suddenly feel assaulted by your conscience? I'd look at you. Who do you think you are to come before God? Think of all the things you did this week that should disqualify you. Do you remember the attitude you had yesterday? Do you remember how, how angry you were with your spouse? Do you remember that unclean thought that passed through your mind a few days ago? Do you remember the person you passed by on the side of the road whose car was broken down and you went, ah, no, I'm busy, I'm not going to stop and do anything? You're not much of a, a Christian, are you? Right, what right do you have with everything you've done to come before God? And it can be really hard to pray. It can be really hard to come before God when we don't have this assurance, when we don't have this confidence that God is welcoming us in, that we don't have confidence that he's willing to hear our prayers. And so as these people John is writing to, they're living their lives, and there's these sects breaking off. They're going, oh, well, this is what you actually have to do, or this is the secret knowledge that you actually have to have to approach God. John wants to assure these people of the facts, that by this, right, the, by, by their being of love, by, by obedience, that the things that are being demonstrated, they will know that they are of the truth. And you may have heard the phrase, feelings aren't facts. And I think I was chatting about them with my counselor a few months back. And it's this idea that we have that our emotions aren't always accurate to what is happening. Our feelings aren't facts. And I think sometimes this phrase is weaponized to invalidate people's lived experience. I don't think that's right. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Our feelings are valid, but sometimes our feelings can run a little bit wild. And the, the short remark we get from our boss when he's in a hurry or the angry side eye we get from our spouse gets built up in our minds to be this much bigger and more dramatic issue. I remember when I was dating my wife, Maddie, and there was this moment that Maddie went, I, I, I think David's going to break up with me. And you're all thinking, like, David, why would you do that? She's great. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. And I wasn't planning on it. And, you know, I was in the process. I was getting hired here at Ellerslie, and uh, we were planning to get engaged. We had been looking at rings, and we were finishing up school. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so neither of us remembers what I did or said or the, the tone in my voice that, that caused this to happen. But there was something that I did that made Maddie think, he's going to break up with me. And so Maddie's like, I got this, and I got permission to tell this story, but this is her own words. She's like, I'm gonna break up with him first. <laughs> her own words, so I win. Now, in the end, it worked out, okay? Like, we're, we're good, but this idea is the feelings can get built up into something much more than they are, right? We can get, they can run rampant. We can get away from the truth 
of what's happening. And so John is kind of saying that same thing here, right? There's times when our heart condemns us. There's times when we feel like we're not enough. There's times when we feel we're not living in the truth. There's times God is gonna feel distant. And so John is bringing us back to this truth that when we live lives marked by love, we can be assured that we are walking in the truth, right? that we're walking in the light. And there's times that we have you know, real guilt. right? There's unrepentant sin in our lives or unchecked behaviors or things that we do need to repent from, we need to confess, uh, and things like that. But John's talked about that earlier in the letter. But here he's talking more about illegitimate guilt, right? guilt that comes from a misguidance in our moral compass, uh, unrealistic expectations we put on ourselves, a distorted view of God and what he's called us to do, overly perfectionistic attitudes, or perhaps when we do start to live lives of love and we see others and we go, man, I'm gonna start giving radically generous things to these people around us, you realize I can never do enough. But God transcends our hearts in his omniscience, right? And this makes him the ultimate judge. The inner voice of our conscience is not a reliable indicator. And as the Apostle Paul explains in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Right? The only impartial judge that we have is God, and the only facts that matter are what God looks at, and the way that we can be assured that we are in him and walking with him is our actions of love. John continues in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Right, when God's opinion of us is first and foremost in our minds, we have this newfound boldness in our relationship with him. Right? We can experience this principally through prayer, but I think everyone's familiar with The Wizard of Oz. There's this iconic scene in the movie where Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, they arrive in Emerald City for the first time and they're here to see the wizard and they're walking down this long green corridor heading to these huge doors to see the wizard and as the doors slowly open, the music reaches this crescendo volume and there's fire and pillars and sparks and smoke that the production team told me I couldn't have for this illustration and there's this booming voice bellowing forth from the throne and Dorothy and her friends step forward. They're kind of quaking with fear. And the wizard says, step forward, Tin Man. So the Tin Man steps forward. And he's, he's shaking, he's rattling, it's, he's clinking, he's clattering. And the wizard says to him, do you dare come to me to ask for a heart? You clinking, clanking, clattering collection of caligonous junk. Is that how Christians are supposed to come into the presence of God? Right, quaking with fear? Stuttering? Of course not. We have confidence. The, the author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says again, Hebrews 10.19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Our lives that are marked by love, they assure us, they give us confidence in our relationship with God. 
And these last two verses of our passage, they again speak of this assurance, but this time we're just going to cover it a bit more broadly for time, right? John is, again, he's writing to assure these people of their salvation, to assure them of the gospel. And you could preach an entire sermon on these two verses, but uh, it says this in verse 23, 24, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so when we doubt, when we worry, when we feel like God's distant or unapproachable, we can confidently approach him. We can be assured because of our belief in his sacrifice, because of our love for one another, because of our obedience to his commandments, because of the infilling we have of the Holy Spirit. And so there are kind of two challenges, I think, that come from this passage, or perhaps a, a challenge and a reminder But first, we need to take time, we need to look at our lives, and we need to figure out if we are living lives that are marked by love. But if someone looks at us and looks at how we spend our time or how we spend our money or what we do with the resources that we have or the attitudes and the way we talk about people when they're not in the room, would they see someone that is marked by love? Would they see someone who truly loves one another? Because if that's not what people would see in our lives, we need to repent. We have to come before God sincerely and turn over our lives. We need to ask God to give us his perspective on others so that we might see them and act towards them in the way that God would, in this loving way. What can you do this week to love others well? What can you do to be more aware of the needs around you? I'll invite the the band up as we close, but this passage also reminds us that when we live lives of love, we can be assured that God is with us. We can be confident in approaching him, and we can be confident in seeking him. Our obedience, our love, our belief, they assure us of the salvation we have. They give us confidence of the sacrifice that was made for us and the family that we have been invited into. And if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't repented of your sins and your shortcomings and looked to him and his sacrifice as your saving grace and you'd like to, I'd invite you even right now in your seat to just take a moment and pray, reflect as the the band sings. We're not going to make you raise a hand or stand up, but just take a moment and thank Jesus for his sacrifice on the cross and turn over your life to him. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we thank you that you have given us the ability to show love to others in a meaningful way. God, we ask that you would be changing our hearts, that you would give us eyes that match your eyes, that we might see those around us the way you see them. Beautiful creations full of value, fully deserving of love. God, let us not have hard hearts towards those that are around us, but let us be people that are known as those who love others. Amen. Amen.